Hi, this is Benjamin Joff, partner at SOSV. We invest in early-stage startups with a focus on deep tech, ranging from cellular agriculture to neurotech and service robots. In this podcast, startup founders and investors tell us how innovation can go from lab to market. I like to work on problems that come from fundamental shifts, population shifts, labor shifts. I spend a lot of time in the automation robotic phase. I love looking at these old school industries that tech can just really help them in ways that they haven't imagined before. Kelly Chen is a partner at DCVC, a US-based venture fund founded in 2011 that raised $725 million in November 2019 to invest mostly in deep tech. Kelly, the China-born New Yorker who graduated from Columbia Engineering and Wharton with a focus on finance algorithms and manufacturing operations. She worked as a fixed-income trader and started angel investing actively and eventually dived into venture capital. DCVC has invested in agtech, advanced manufacturing, biology, and even space tech. Kelly focuses on the transformation of manufacturing, logistics, and supply chain with automation and AI. In this episode, Kelly talks about the opportunities offered by major demographic and labor shifts, DCVC's unique network of equity partners who support the firm with deal flow, expertise, and business networks. She describes how DCVC mixes thesis-driven and opportunistic investments and their approach for the due diligence of deep tech startups on both the technology and business side. Finally, we close with some remarks on the COVID-19 situation for DCVC's portfolio and investment activity, as well as recommendations on how to deal with confinement and ramp up knowledge on deep tech. Hi, Kelly. Great to have you today. Thanks, Ben. Good to be here. You're a partner at DCVC, and you've been investing in deep tech for a number of years now. Can you tell us about your background and what DCVC is all about? Sure. So we're an early stage deep tech VC, investing mainly in seed and series A companies. And we focus on companies that are solving problems that require hard engineering and hard science. Sectors that we invest in range from space, quantum computing, to health and computational bio, robotics, and many different verticalized applications of AI. In terms of how I got here, a bit of background on me. Originally from the East Coast, and before moving to the Bay Area where I live now, I was in New York City for over a decade. I grew up in the the tri-state, and before that, I'm originally from China. I went to undergrad at Columbia. I majored in financial engineering, and I'm often asked, what the heck is that? Essentially, it's a combination of probability models, statistics, and programming. And this was before big data was even a thing, but it incorporates a lot of the foundations of what is now modern day machine learning models. A number of my classmates then are now quants or in the machine learning field. I also did my master's at the engineering school, focusing on operations research, supply chain, and pricing models. After I graduated, I became a fixed income trader for a number of years where my desk worked on the entire process of structuring, modeling, and trading different kinds of securitized products. Then I went on to build a new product line trading desk for a global investment bank. During that time is when I started angel investing with close friends and colleagues. And I just love learning about different sectors and new problem spaces. By the time I went to business school, I knew I wanted to try venture capital. I was very fortunate to find my way to DCVC. So I mentioned I had made some angel investments in the deep tech space, including in a space company where I spent a, a lot of time and diligence. 
DCVC was one of the most sophisticated investors in the space space, <laughs> in addition to being very sophisticated in a ton of other physical engineering science fields. I've always liked technical problems, being part of technical teams. I mean, two engineering degrees and then quant trading, and I used to do U.S. math competitions. So the DCVC team has been an amazing fit for me. You started working with them during your business degree and then eventually joined the team? Yes. What particular sectors are you focusing on at DCVC? The partners at the DCVC flagship fund were all deep tech generalists who will spend more time in specific sectors. I choose to spend most of my time in manufacturing, logistics, supply chain. So a bit of more of my background. I like to work on problems that come from kind of fundamental shifts. So I like to think about population shifts, labor shifts, and I spend a lot of time in the automation robotics space. So I'll focus on these sectors. We have a number of other partners that have specific focuses, say in quantum computing, in health and biotech. But we also have a separate bio fund, which we raised about two years ago. We have two GPs that came from our fund for growth ventures on that fund. The team on that fund focuses more on, say, wet lab bio and the ag space, whereas our team focuses much more on the computational space. There's a lot of similarities with the scope we have at SOSV with hardware, robotics, sensors, and also the life sciences. But I think you also have frontier tech investments that we typically don't do, like space tech uh, and a few others. Right. We're probably one of the most active space investors. One of our partners was the former co-founder, CTO of Planet Labs. He's been amazing in helping us build a really robust space portfolio. So we're investors in Rocket Labs and Capella Space, obviously investors in Planet back in the day before they launched any satellites, in addition to a number of other geospatial investments. So we're, we're very fortunate to be very active in that space. In space tech, you do both launchers, satellites, and other solutions. Exactly. Let's talk about some of the sectors you particularly focus on. So you mentioned uh, logistics, you mentioned manufacturing. Those are sectors that don't necessarily get a lot of attention from generalist VCs. What do you find appealing in those particular sectors? Before even starting at DCVC, I've been to over a dozen warehouses and manufacturing centers just as a function of my two operations degrees. I did consulting for them. So it's a little bit partially my background and interest. But the other portion is it fits very well into the labor shift and population shift that I spoke about. If you think about the transition in what deep tech is capable of now, as opposed to what it was, say, just a few years ago, robotics and computer vision is getting to a place where it can actually not just supplement humans, but help do tasks that are currently dangerous or super inefficient to use humans, as well as fill the gaps where we are missing a ton of labor force. For an example, in the logistics space, if you look at long haul trucking, we're missing something like 50 to 80,000 truck drivers a year, just because long haul trucking is a grueling job in which you're away from your family for weeks and you're driving long hours and it's a bit mind-numbing. So it's really difficult to find people to, to fill that job. So we're invested in Embark, which is a long-haul autonomous trucking company, kind of with that thesis of labor shortage. 
and then in the the manufacturing space, a, a number of other companies that are similarly looking at labor shortage. We actually have some portfolio companies in common, both on the biotech side and the industry side. One in the textile industry, maybe you can talk about what appeal you found in this company. I'm an investor in Smartex. Right. I'm an investor in Smartex, which is also a SV company. They're in the textile manufacturing defect space. What is kind of unique and shocking about that space is that about 30 billion of textile waste happens at the end stage when your textile and clothing is already created and they get scrapped because of defects. So if you think about 30 billion, not only in money, but in actual processing and labor and just the amount of landfill that it goes to, that's an astounding amount of waste. And the vast majority, something like 80% of those defects happen in the very initial stages where your, say, knitting machines are creating the actual pieces of cloth. Right now, it's impossible to cast by eye the defects that come along in the knitting machines. You'd have to have humans looking at each knitting machine at all times to be able to capture these defects. And in addition, it's really hard to see in that this is naked fabric and the lighting is not good. It's just really hard to see the, the small defects that are happening. What Smartex does is they have sensors and computer vision to be able to real-time detect defects as they come out in the machines. So you're able to stop the machine and then remedy this. So it's not wasting the entire swath of fabric. And the defected swath of fabric doesn't need to go down the supply chain and become an end piece of clue that needs to be scrapped way down the line. So now you're catching defects as they happen. You're saving manufacturers all the cloth that would have been wasted. And then also it's just an amazing sustainability play as well. By catching defects at kind of the weaving stage, you avoid having that problem propagate all the way to the store. And then often right now, they do human spot check of the swaths of fabric before it moves on to the next stage, right? And if you have a human check, say they check like a small percentage of the fabric and they catch a defect on the fabric, they'll get rid of the entire sheet of fabric because there's no remedy to that. Now, when you catch the problem, you don't need to continue making that entire swath of fabric. So it's saving a lot of raw materials as well. There's so many sectors of industry and also in, in agriculture and other types of industries that don't get the amount of innovation they deserve, probably. Right. And I love looking at these old school industries that aren't really used to having tech, that tech can just really help them in ways that they haven't imagined before. So at first, it's probably a more difficult sale to these customers that are kind of skeptical that tech can fix some of these problems. But once they see it, it's very compelling. On the more general thesis around deep tech investment, we also see that overall, there's so many things that require both bits and atoms to actually solve problems in the physical world. But at the same time, as of today, there haven't been so many multi-billion dollar exits in those fields. So how do you assess the potential of companies with very new technologies in sectors in which you haven't had so many large exits so far? They might be like the first in their category. How do you mitigate that? That's a, a part of a traditional diligence process, right? Like um, doing your exit scenario analysis that some of the, the more innovative companies within deep tech can't really have. 
But what you can do is start with kind of bottoms up and top down market sizing to be able to approximate how big the company can be. And thus, it's an approximation for what an exit could be, as well as keeping in mind the different kind of channels that you can have for your exits, whether it's acquisition or always, hopefully, an, an IPO. So being able to accurately look at potential unit economics and do a stringent market sizing can really help mitigate that. And examples of companies that we've invested in that just are kind of trailblazing, right? Like there, there's no precedent for it. I mentioned planets already. We invested before they had any satellites. So back then, like commercial satellites just weren't a thing. Like they kind of launched the small satellite revolution. And just to be able to proxy what that data is worth, you look at a lot of, say, what people are paying for non-commercial satellite imagery and like the use cases there. And the use cases are just, they're huge if you can get the satellites up. So just using other proxies as well as looking at the problem space and approximating what consumer demand could be. About exits, what's also interesting with those deep tech or industry plays is that the variety of buyers is also expanding. It's not just limited to tech companies. Like, for example, in your portfolio, one company called Blue River Technologies was doing agriculture technology and got acquired by John Deere. So not exactly what people would think of a buyer of deep tech, but uh, it was a pretty large exit of over 300 million, if I recall. Right. I think some of these large companies are realizing that they need not only to innovate, they're looking at these smaller companies with some highly technical people that are already building some products that they could easily integrate into their portfolio. There's so many other applications that these initial products could touch. It's becoming very apparent that large companies need to be able to move to AI and these cases, hardware robotics. To discuss also about uh, your approach, how do you typically look at deals? Are you thesis driven? Like you look for companies in a particular sector and you actively seek them out? Or do you also mix that with some more opportunistic deals that might come to you in sectors that you don't necessarily cover yet? It has to be a mix of both. And I would say if someone is completely thesis driven, right, and you've narrowed down a great thesis, it's still a challenge for you to be able to find a company that is in that narrow space. So I think you have to be open to what is out there, right? Unless you're incubating a lot of companies in-house based on your thesis. So to give an example of hybrid of thesis and kind of opportunistic was I I mentioned SmartTech, right? It's very much in the manufacturing space, but I'd say that textile wasn't something that we have invested in before. And it's an industry that had, had not really spent very much time in. And that portion of the manufacturing industry was very opportunistic in terms of meeting the company and learning about the problem and then speaking with a whole bunch of our manufacturing textile companies about the problem. So I think a lot of it is a hybrid. There's another company in our portfolio that was a lot more thesis driven, and we were fortunate to be able to find a company kind of exactly in the space of the thesis. So one of the companies that I'm on the board of called Safely You is using sensors and computer vision for dementia falls for the elderly. And they sell to assisted living centers. And they've been able to show through just a few months pilots that they're able to actually reduce hospitalizations from falls by anywhere from 40 to 70%. 
which if you think about the number of elderly people with dementia out there, that's, that's huge for the population in terms of safety and in terms of the, the amount of money that goes into these hospitalizations. And how that came from a, a thesis driven is originally I was looking at population shifts, right? And we all know that the baby boomers are getting older. And then a consequence of that is that your people of caregiving age, the kids to these baby boomers, say people who are anywhere from their 40s to 60s, the proportion of the caregiving age to that elderly people is going to reduce by more than half. So if you have so many less caregivers, potential caregivers, how do you properly take care of your elderly people? And then when you go from that problem, if you think about how do I use tech to supplement this on the biggest impact scale, and then you see what the biggest problems are for elderly people and falls are by far the number one costly as well as costly problem. And then just for Medicare, Medicaid alone, I believe it's something like 30 to $50 billion a year for elderly falls. So starting from the, the big funnel, right, which is the baby boomers and kind of narrowing down to that space, we were very fortunate to found the Safely New team and we're, we're very excited about what they're building. In a way, we also have kind of similar approach. We can't really anticipate all the specific innovations that will come up, but we can see major shifts. We also made a recent investment in a company for senior living. It's a robotics company for assisted living called Labrador Systems. One other thing I was wondering is, so you're an early stage investor, but you also invest pretty large tickets. What do you typically want to see in a company? And I'm asking that question because you mentioned that when you invested in a satellite company, they didn't have yet a satellite ready. So does it vary? Do you need to see prototype? Like how much of the science risk need to be already behind? It certainly differs for different types of companies for kind of your one-offs, right? You mentioned the satellite company, um, ensuring credibility of the team. Like had they built satellites before for say NASA or, or other, I mean, it was only NASA back then. The credibility is definitely huge if they don't have a prototype, right? And also they had a bunch of things to show already at that time. And then for other companies, say, say ones that are working purely in the software field, right, where it's easier to get an MVP up, we would definitely want to see an MVP. So typically we come in at, like I mentioned, seed in series A. So seed stage, we definitely like to see a prototype as well as most often the companies are already at a pilot stage where they're testing out their prototypes or doing some joint development with a larger company. It's quite rare when you have only one single company in the entire world that is working on a particular technology. What made you decide to invest or pass on a company? What made the difference compared to others that you studied, maybe looked at at the same time? It's not that often that we work on things that are of the planet kind of rarity, right? But then they're working on kind of new applications, kind of like Martex, in which the tech isn't the most forefront revolutionary, but it's very tailored and applied to a specific industry. I'm asking that because you mentioned fault detection technology, and there's many companies working on this. And like, what made the one you picked more convincing than the others that were out there? Oh, right. So in terms of the fall detection, there are a number of other solutions out there. Wearables that use accelerometers. There are bed sensors. There's radar tech. And these guys are using only computer vision. And they've been able to get to by far the highest accuracy because all of the other tech is almost not usable by, say, your assisted living centers because they throw so many false positives. And with the Safely U team, they have a lot of in-the-wild elderly fall data. 
which helps them get to the level of accuracy that they are. In addition to just a highly technical team that is super focused on this specific problem. Okay, so they had a smarter approach to the problem. Right. And they're one of the very few that are using only computer vision because they have a lot of the proprietary data. So you can't train these algorithms off of just pure, say, like skateboard falls off the image net. Elderly falls look very different than your typical skateboard falls because they're, say, slower or like there is more like different kinds of posturing as opposed to a, a big impact. That must be a very strange data set to look at. Yeah, I imagine. Do they put cameras in the environment or is it something that uh, elderly would carry with them? No, it's in the environment. They only sell to institutions right now. They don't sell to the individual homes just as a a more compliance type of thing in which they can have installations more regulated as opposed to having people install in their own individual homes for now. So initially targeting assisted living centers. Okay, interesting. As a side note on this topic, I remember having a conversation with the director of a senior care facility, and he was mentioning that they were testing a lot of new technologies, and that with one of the fall detection technologies that they tested, they realized that the falls went down, but everything else went up. Because of the technology, their staff were doing less rounds, and so were picking up less on other problems that normally they would also notice as they were going around the facilities. So it's, it's kind of interesting, uh, weird side effects that happen sometimes. Or also an important one to this company is that if you think about cameras, right, in the living space, that is a big invasion of privacy. And no one wants that. With this company, because they're able to get to such high accuracy, they're confident in only recording the minutes of the fall once they detect that. Uh, Okay, so they only record events. Exactly. So constantly records over until the rare event is detected. That way, it's constantly running, but also not invading privacy. That's very clever. To go further into deal flow, how is DCVC generating deal flow? Because you can't cover all the different sectors. What are the sources that you find most suitable for you? And are there particular geographies or particular approaches that you have? Right. We do a lot of the traditional deal flow sources through accelerators, angels, and other VCs. But something I think makes us pretty special within deep tech, because as you mentioned, there are so many different kinds of verticals out there is that we have a network of what we call equity partners. And these are 50 plus individuals, technical leaders at some major fortune companies or previous startup founders or university professors who are really kind of technical experts in their field. They help uh, source as well as do technical diligence, as well as once companies come into our portfolio to really use their operating experience and their network within these larger companies to help our companies succeed. These are typically CTOs, CIOs of the major companies, as well as if you're thinking about the university professors that have access to a lot of different kinds of research and students and just propagating on that deep tech network. We're very fortunate to get a lot of introductions. There's such an array of technologies in deep tech. It's just impossible for an investor to know all of it. What's your typical process for technical due diligence, either in a sector that you're already invested in or in a new sector? We're starting out easier. It's a sector that we've already invested in, right? We've probably done diligence in the past with a number of experts, as well as now we have that portfolio company who is also an expert in that sector. So we often tap our portfolio companies to help us with diligence. And they're often a really good source of new introductions for new potential companies because they're very well into that ecosystem. 
And in terms of sectors that we haven't invested in, if we want to bring up, say, smart tech or say for you again, right? So the textile manufacturing. So textile manufacturing, before we invested, we spoke with manufacturers all over the world, Turkey, Bangladesh, Portugal. So just using your network as well as introductions from the company and friends of friends to be able to get those initial customer conversations. And then as well as primary research. So if you look at our first elder care investment, which I was talking about safely, you um, speaking to a ton of assisted living centers, as well as decision makers and experts in the field, as well as universities that are studying elder care, just branching out into that ecosystem and learning a lot more about not only the problem space, but other tangential problem spaces. So you do a combination of technical due diligence, either with the experts, you know, or founders of your portfolio companies, or you build up that new network corresponding to that new sector. And you also try to validate the customer side. Every B2B, but probably even more in deep tech is the, the sales cycle risk. Even if you have the technology, it might take a while to get adopted and maybe customers are not ready. So is that something you also try to evaluate? Yeah, certainly. So I spoke a lot more on the customer side to your previous question. But then if we talk about the technical side, if we go back to these two companies, they're both computer vision companies. So to do the technical due diligence, like specifically on whether the existing MVP is technically sound and makes sense, you look at the team, right? The team's background, but you also, I mentioned our equity partners, experts in computer vision will have them come in. They might not be vertical experts in say elder care or textile manufacturing, but they're definitely computer vision experts who can help and do the technical due diligence in that field. And then separately, we'll do the customer due diligence, fulfilling the two sides of it. And I would say another thing that I like about DCVC is that the entire investment team is technical. So we have a number of physicists, we have a number of healthcare, bio, pharma experts. I've spent a lot of time on the algorithmic side. So just having a fundamental basis is also helpful. Across the history of DCVC, it evolved from being very data and AI driven to go into kind of full stack type of investments. How's your perception of the deep tech field evolved over time? Like what have you learned about what to do and what not to do over the past few years? So you first asked about how deep tech is evolving over time. And we've very much seen that since the beginning of DCVC. So DCVC started in around 2011, where big data back then wasn't quite a buzzword. Machine learning wasn't quite a thing. So when we were investing, what was at the forefront of whatever frontier tech was were kind of cloud migration and streaming. So during that time, we invested in a number of companies that if you look at them today, they're not quite deep tech anymore. But during their time, they were very innovative. And some of them have grown into some really large companies. So if you look at Confluent, where we're an investor. If it was an early company right now, it wouldn't quite be in scope for us. But back then, they were doing some very innovative things. So over time, what we're more focusing on is less horizontal plays, but much more verticalized plays. We think of Confluent as much more of a horizontal type of company. And then now we're looking at very vertical specific companies. And we've talked about a few of them, the elder care and the manufacturing. And we talked a little bit about satellites and rocket launches and looking at companies that are solving much narrower specific field using AI. And that's more so where we've seen defensibility as the AI deep learning sector is taking off. Your defensibility is the expertise that you find in your specific vertical. Okay, so more specialized industry solution specific, and uh, you see that there's large markets to tap that as well. Right. 
Maybe to switch gear a bit, we're in the, still in the middle of a global pandemic. Actually, we were supposed to meet in Paris at a conference that got postponed. I'm curious to know if you can share some ideas about how your work has changed due to the new situation, not in the daily operations, but in terms of your selection of startups. Do you require startups to have a COVID-19 slide to see whether they're compatible with the pandemic or these type of things? And what kind of impact it had on companies in your portfolio in good and bad? COVID is certainly turning over some very new times for us and our portfolio companies. Right after the lockdown in the first few weeks, we'd spent a significant time working with existing portfolio companies, working on scenarios, different kinds of projections, and basically just challenging all of the possible assumptions in this strange kind of time. Then came a number of things that popped up, including BPP loans and that confusion. Everyone was trying to figure out criteria and qualification. And then all the while, we've been very much evaluating new companies. So we're very much still in business, and we've certainly been more cautious. And we include COVID into all of our own base case assumptions. But if you look at the past few weeks, we have a few new funding announcements, including a larger new deal coming in the next week. So we've been cautiously looking at deals, but very much still optimistic about the medium to long-term future. And venture is a long game, right? If the next year looks challenging, companies that we believe are strong enough to survive that as well as are thinking about the problem in a careful and thoughtful way. Those are some important attributes. We've been really proud of some of our existing portfolio companies that have been at the forefront of fighting COVID. So it hasn't been all negative news for our companies in general and our portfolio companies. One of our investments, Curative, now provides FDA-authorized oral fluid swab tests. And they've been testing over something like 60,000 people so far. Wow. Another one of our investments is a, a DCVC bio investment called Abcelera. And they announced a large agreement with Eli Lilly to co-develop different antibody products for COVID. One more is we're invested in Carbon Health, which through the COVID situation has a whole suite of remote care options, including the online assessment tools and telemedicine, as well as doing full testing in their physical centers. There are a number of other companies. We published a blog post about it on our website. We're very proud of what our companies have been doing in this fight for COVID. Yeah, it's great to see technologies also on the front lines. Some of your companies are not on healthcare, but in uh, automation and manufacturing. Do you see that the current environment is making it harder for them to do business? Or do you see on the contrary that there's maybe more demand for automation because of distanciation and all those things? surprisingly, a lot of our directly automation companies say in the hardware space have been getting a ton of new inbound. Hmm. Actually, I don't know if it's surprising or not surprising because like the large companies right, that are inbounding, a lot of them are, they're kind of freezing a lot of other actions, but they're very interested in automation in the medium term. So we're hearing a lot of inbound on that front and excited to see where these potential partnerships do land. Definitely too early to tell. But I think it's net very positive in the medium term. In healthcare, the pandemic is a tailwind, but it seems that it's also a good catalyst for automation, robotics, AI, this category of innovation. 
Right. I'm very enthusiastic on what this will do for logistics as well as micro logistics, which we've just seen kind of exploding throughout this. Like people can't get enough delivery for normal household items as well as groceries and being able to fulfill those in an automated way will be huge. It's kind of technicality, but in terms of new investments, are you considering or have you done new investments without doing face-to-face -face meetings or like touching the tech? How do you do your due diligence on technology and people with the current constraints? The vast majority of diligence items we typically already do are handleable over video or phone calls. And it's the occasional, say, hardware or it's the more social aspect of being able to meet someone in person that creates more camaraderie, right? So I'd say the vast majority of diligence is able to be handled remotely. So, so far, that hasn't been a big problem. Venture capital is such a people business that manages to transition like almost entirely as a remote operation is quite interesting development. It's certainly making do with what you have, right? I've had some stranger diligence calls with companies that are building hardware where because I can't see it in person, the founders are kind of turning a camera around and then I'm saying, can you move this thing <laughs> to block this? Let me see how the robot reacts. So it's, a, it's an interesting new way of diligencing. I definitely agree with you. Getting to the end without having been there in person for some of these companies is a lot harder than others. That probably covers the different aspects of, from the deal flow, the diligence, and the current situation. I'd love to hear if you have some recommendations about either things you're reading, watching now, or that uh, are your all-time favorites and think are worth sharing. I've been doing a lot more physical activities during my free time during COVID because I'm, I'm usually really used to being out and about and now just being locked in as soon as it's free time. I like to be outside. In terms of watching, don't watch a lot of TV, but I love kind of nature shows and I've watched all of the planet Earth and the blue oceans one and two many times. And Netflix is this new nighttime nature show where they're using advanced night camera that makes nighttime video look almost like daytime. I love photography. So this is a super interesting one for me. And it's just amazing what they can capture in terms of nighttime activity for wildlife. It looks totally different. And you're getting all these nocturnal kind of hunting and behavior that people haven't been able to capture before with just a light and camera. I think I saw a glimpse of that on Netflix. I'll, I'll check it out in more detail. That sounds quite a nice way to relax after a day mostly indoor. Another question would be if you have some recommendations for people to ramp up their knowledge on deep tech, on investing. In our previous conversations, you mentioned that you actually like to form your own opinion and try not to get too much influence, but you might still have some good sources to point to. I would say that for deep tech, because it is so broad, deep tech exists across something like 50 different kinds of verticals. I would start with learning about verticals that would have a higher concentration of deep tech. So for example, if you're looking at the manufacturing vertical, right? McKinsey and some of the other consulting companies published some really good deep dives into, say, manufacturing and understanding those problems and then understanding where you'd like to go from those problems that leads you to a certain area of robotics, then start researching to that area of robotics. 
I don't think there's a playbook for all of deep tech, right? If you're going to focus on, say, quantum computing, there's very specific resources for quantum computing. And if you're looking at space, it's just a very different field from everything else. So the information is all scattered and it's verticalized. It's an interesting approach to look at more mature sectors and then look for adjacencies for technologies uh, across sectors. Well, thank you so much for your time and your insights, Kelly. Yeah, thanks, Ben, for having me. Thanks for listening. To know more about DCVC, check out their website, Twitter, on the coverage of the latest fund closed in November 2019. Subscribe now for future episodes, follow us on Twitter at Lab2Market and at SOSV, or visit our other podcasts, Designing Science on Biology and China Startup Pulse on Asia Cross-Border Internet. Mm-hmm.